Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Farmers Capital Conversations, bringing you helpful strategies and practical resources to help you invest on and off the farm. If you find value today, don't hesitate to leave us an honest review and share the episode. Yes, this helps us, but more importantly, it could help someone else along their journey. Now, let's dive in without further ado. You can't really understand what to do next unless you have a good mentor. And a a mentor as a consultant is someone who's done it before and who can help kind of hold your hand and walk you through your own decisions, right? Not putting some model on your farm that, you know, worked somewhere else, but just, you know, thoughtfully answering very specific questions. And if you don't have them, you can talk it through a little more. We can find somebody else. But um, the the expertise uh, does not lie in some, you know, outside office or multinational grain company. The answers are in the peer network about how to do things different because literally everybody else is just trying to sell the farm or something. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are joined with Brenda Gaden. She is an economist, market analyst, foodie, farmer, mom, writer, and advocate for regenerative agriculture. She has an undergrad and master's in agricultural economics from the University of Manitoba, has her 10,000 hours in commodity grain market analysis, and is always grounded by time spent with in the outdoors with her family and friends. Brenda, excited to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Casey. Yeah, absolutely. We've had some technical issues for the last few minutes, but I'm excited to get you on. And your background is fascinating, and I appreciate your perspectives on regenerative ag and because you're it seems like you're bridging this world of economics and consulting and regenerative ag and from my standpoint I kind of view view you as this hub of those three um, intersections of ag. Um, thank you I yeah I, I, I conceived a new model in in, in farmland profit maximization um, about a year ago, after doing consulting projects for different uh, food brands and investment funds and um, a couple of farms here and there, just a, a, I did, I, in 2022, I just had a real mishmash of, of different organizations that I was working with. And um, <clears throat> through conversation after conversation about, um, you know, it kind of started with carbon credits and then you know, those weren't able to be validated and everybody shifted focus to biodiversity scores and seeing some of the companies, some of the big brands with their scorecards that they had developed internally and comparing these to certified organic and we have some other traceability programs in the grain industry that, you know, all of these things in 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 some logical manner have to be considered simultaneously now as we decide what to do with our farmland and you know so it, it I think it's um, it's still quite widely believed that yield times price is the revenue driver and okay maybe it is still in a lot of cases but that sure as heck isn't where the markets are taking us in agriculture there are markets for all kinds of attributes now and there's technology to validate the presence of those attributes there's technology to validate the presence of the outcomes 
and some good people at different organizations like Land to Market and Regenified and Regenerative Organics Certified have seen this coming and have taken it on, on to make sure there's uh, validation available. It hasn't come quickly. It hasn't prevented a whole bunch of corporate greenwashing. It hasn't quickly changed the decision-making framework for farmers from price times yield, which means optimize price, optimize yield in order to make the most money. Um, but early adopters of regenerative agriculture have proven that the expense side of the equation can be drastically um, reduced by in, 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 introducing more biodiversity in place of agrochemicals, in place, things like compost tea to activate the biology to help improve nutrient cycling and, and nutrient, micronutrient balances and, you know, those products or just cover cropping, intercropping, rotational grazing, um, you know, the math on these business models from a farmland management perspective is, is quite compelling. And, you know, so the, 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 the new model, I think, has to incorporate five different revenue streams and permanent reductions in crop input use. It's not necessarily certified organic, although there's some people that will always demand, you know, zero chemicals used in farming, but so many other new attributes are being are being priced in and can, can be attached to a grain sales contract. Just one more piece of paper that says I dropped my fertilizer use by 50% compared to last year. I think that's worth money. I think the food companies are having a hard time finding it. I think oil and gas companies, bio, biofuels, there's not one sector, textiles, that won't be affected by these changing economics. And I, I think it's really exciting when you see the regulatory frameworks coming along to to kind of put put some um, put some more structure around it. So you know, market access limitations and securities oversight. So you know, those kinds of institutions to back the new uh, economic model um, are are coming real quick too. So yeah, certainly uh, mm -hmm. the economics and the consulting and of Regen Ag have been slow to sort of crystallize, but um, it looks like a whole new looks like a whole new world order coming. It's been fun. That's that's wild, and it's yeah. If you're in the industry, it's probably you've seen it on the horizon, um, but weren't sure really how to integrate or figure out how it's going to impact your farm in a meaningful way. But I love that you brought up this new model and the the five factors. Can you give us a brief overview of the five factors? of the new model from your perspective? Oh, yeah, I mean, it kind of, it's shape-shifting, you know, but in, here in Canada, uh, we have something called the On-Farm Climate Action Fund, and it'll pay $75 an acre for seed, it'll pay 85% of uh, fencing and watering systems, just straight-up cash reimbursement to farms to start adopting some of these practices. Um, so that's real money, right? And that, and it, but you know, if you're going to put a <clears throat> field that was in wheat canola and you're going to put it into grazing, well, you've got a pretty hefty upfront seed cost to seed a pasture to what? Sell hay? Like that does not compete with canola, not even close. But at least there's a good sort of oomph kind of kind of push from the government to help farmers who want to do that anyway to introduce that on some of their lands. So that's revenue stream number one, and that's right here right now and I my understanding is 
that I'm not the expert here, but I sure enjoyed your podcast with Mitchell Hora a couple of weeks ago about carbon intensity scoring and how that's going to result in tax rebates or some kind of a rebate in the uh-huh. U.S. And so yep. there's there's another one, right? Like so, you've got upfront payments here. Just here's here. I'm just here's a check. Just go do it. And then tax incentives. So carbon tax, you know, um, fertilizer tax. I don't. I mean, I don't know what these things are going to look like but they're going to be attached to greenhouse gas emissions. Otherwise, countries are not going to meet their targets. And, you know, there's no, um, you know, it's only the next election that's going to determine whether or not they they get punished for that or not. But it just doesn't seem to be something that's going to, like, ever go away forever, the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from a, from a national perspective. So um, taxes are, you know, that taxes are the way. In economics, it's always we talk about carrots and sticks, right? So, the you know the, yep. the next round of, of sticks becomes compliance. So to be able to um, continue to be traded on certain exchanges, the commissions are going to be requiring that scope three emissions data be reported, that ESG scores are validated. So the next tier of value, new valuation here becomes market access. And um, if you can access some markets and not others, then you have a t- you have a tier where premium markets will evolve. And <clears throat> then on top of that, um, you know, market access for um, ingredients that are compliant with the company's investor and trading platform reporting criteria. That's one tier of value. Um, but companies will also be paying farmers for um, ecosystem services, for biological outcomes. I don't know what you want to call it, but everybody knows that more biodiversity makes a farm more more resilient, uh, both environmentally and economically. And so um, people are quickly working to try to, to, try to <clears throat> uh, come up with new incentives for that. And so one that we've seen here is a straight up per acre payment for intercropping. And intercropping is it, it's really, it's. I mean, I want to say quite popular. Maybe there's a million acres of it across Western Canada, but that's pretty big compared to where it used to be. Compared to the fact that it's a pain to separate those seeds afterwards. And the reason why it's taking off is because uh, farmers can drastically reduce their <clears throat> fungicide, herbicide, and fertilizer costs in the first year. Like it's, it's really quite, it's really quite cool how a field of chickpeas doesn't just doesn't get nearly the the threat of from disease spores as if it's commingled in the field with other plant species like flax compared to a monocrop chickpea on its own that can be sprayed you know nine ten times in a season easily uh intercrop chickpeas can be sprayed maybe once or twice so that's like serious right that is serious fungicide savings um so the the expense savings is another Maybe number four if I'm there. And then number five would be just straight out uh, payments to farmers for their knowledge, for offering a field tour to demonstrate to outsiders how this is happening and what the crops look like and dig around in the soil counter forms, measure water infiltration. You know, that's that's um, exciting stuff to see. And not everybody knows where to go to find that knowledge or to be able to actually have a tour. And so what we're seeing now is those farmers getting paid to offer tours 
And then in our business, we've evolved that into into paying farmers for consulting. Uh, so just being able to bring them in for a few hours here and there to help another landowner to, you know, just figure out seeding rates, if it's an unfamiliar crop or markets, if it's not something that they've grown before or, uh, you know, fencing and watering systems, if they're getting into managed grazing. We've got, um, you know, I've been at this long enough now. I've made friends and figured out who are the who are the early adopters out there in, in farms in Western Canada. And so now when we have a new customer come along who has questions, you know, we need serious tactical advice, we can find people that have done it and that can advise them on what worked for them and uh, in, in the context of the new customer's field that they want to transition. That's most of what we're working on these days. It's pretty cool, especially when you think about the consulting piece of this. Consulting is, everyone knows what consulting is. They hear these big firms, EY, um, McKinsey, and the other big consulting firms, but there's never really been consulting integrated into agriculture in this way where we're incentivizing these regenerative farmers for their knowledge. And it, it's probably something new for them also in that they've, they happily share their knowledge, but very rarely have they actually been paid for their knowledge. Yeah, it's really fun to turn that model upside down. Cause I mean, I've, I've got a long history in developing consulting businesses for farmers and providing professional services. And, you know, it always seems to be the farmer has to pay for some consulting service that they don't want to do themselves, right? Like they don't want to do their own accounting. They don't want to do their own commodity-grade marketing. They don't want to walk fields. Yeah. They don't want to, you know, do tissue testing, so they hire some third-party expert to to do it for them. And, <clears throat> I mean, that that business model – Look, it had its day. It had its it had its run run in the sun, but it's it's in hindsight now. I look at that as uh, a kind of a vulnerable business decision. To be farming out key decisions is not ideal if you're running a large, you know, any size of a, of a farm. If the farm is important in terms of you know providing income and multi generational you know stability, then I kind of think that the owner should be taking on as much uh, knowledge and decision-making power as possible as opposed to just, you know, like setting the GPS. It's, you know, it's not like that. Like there's, you know, there's context that really needs to be considered. Not to say that everybody needs to be their own lawyer or accountant or whatever, but um, <clears throat> grain marketing is not hard, for example. I mean, that was my last sort of economic business model that I figured out when I was doing my master's was, you know, what are the different constraints and and influences that optimize the, the grain marketing decision? Well, that was like 20 years ago. We don't have the Canyon Wheat Board anymore. We have outdated regulations in, in the rest of the industry here. We have um, totally new players, and farmers are, you know, just it, – it, there's, there's too much of it that's automated. And so I think that um, the the idea of an outside third-party expert – is probably running its course, you know, like, and again, back to this new world order here, who understands all those different elements, right? Like you can find somebody to help you with grant applications. That makes sense. You can find, you know, you can subscribe to my sub stack and learn about all the new market, smart market segments that are emerging and how they're pricing, 
in new opportunities in the supply chain. You can read until you're blue in the face about carbon trading and carbon asset pricing and the monitoring and the reporting and the validation that's coming. Like there's, but you can't really understand what to do next unless you have a good mentor. And a, a mentor as a consultant is someone who's done it before and who can help kind of hold your hand and walk you through your own decisions, right? Not putting some model on your farm that, you know, worked somewhere else, but just, you know, thoughtfully answering very specific questions. And if you don't have them, you can talk it through a little more. We can find somebody else. But um, the the expertise uh, does not lie in some, you know, outside office or multinational grain company. The answers are in the peer network about how to do things different because literally everybody else is just trying to sell the farm or something. Right. Well, I want to sell you yeah. bulk grain handling. I want to sell you the same amount of fertilizer that I sold you last year, hopefully a little bit more, or you know another tier gene stacked into your seed. Like, there's just <clears throat> it's it's been really hard to figure out how to monetize regenerative agriculture because there's so much money getting sucked out of agribusiness as part of it. You know, it's just like yeah. how do you make money in you know in, like it's so counterintuitive compared to how everybody's um, grown their wealth in this industry in the last few decades. Um, but yeah, no, I think we're onto something here with paying farmers for their knowledge because uh, they enjoy it. The conversations are so positive. They're so hopeful. We're able to do this on like very large scale farms and very small scale farms alike. Um, everybody has lots to learn from one another, but for the most part, we're we're matching up farmers that have been doing this for five to 10 years and and setting them up as subject matter experts within, you know, a long-term planning framework um, that, you know, me and my farm management consultants and marketing colleagues, we, you know, we pull in the subject matter experts to make sure that we've got a full and complete uh, relevant set of guidelines and, and budget forecasts that are based on somebody else's experience who's actually done it successfully, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. sounds Brenda. And I love that you bring up the resilience piece of it. It's almost like this new world order of paying these solid mentors to help these farmers transition, whether it's one piece of their farm or the whole thing, but they're building, they're helping build intellectual resilience into the farm as an entity, as a business itself, as a standalone company. And that's what I love about it. it. It's not outsourcing these different knowledge areas. You're essentially building it in-house, and that is making these farms more resilient from an intellectual standpoint. And, I mean, we understand resilience from biodiversity standpoint, from income streams. You know, everyone knows just supposed to have multiple income streams, supposed to be hedged correctly. But this intellectual piece, it is something that that excites me a ton, and I love that you brought up the the mentorship program and what you guys are doing. It's just it's a like you said, new world order, and I think it's really exciting. Oh, thanks. It's um it's a real learning journey for for everyone. You know, I we aren't taught this stuff in university, um, and. You know, there's so much skepticism around the biologicals and the and the different products that are coming out now, and I think that skepticism is is justified. You know, I worry sometimes that the 
you know, we're, we're just another, um, we're just rolling out another whole bunch of snake oils. Um, because where I've seen regenerative agriculture have a really big impact on fertilizer use, it's not by substituting it with AMF or bugs, some, you know, some strain of bacteria. I haven't, like, I'm not questioning the science, and I know there's lots of trials going on with all those products now, but I just haven't seen that. In, I just haven't seen that be the thing that cuts fertilizer and crop input use um, on farms. It's um, I'm, cer- I'm certainly skeptical also because it's another line of products, you know. So mm-hmm. oh, there may be some substitutability, but the dramatic changes are happening on farms that have figured out how to produce, you know, mountains of compost and to a- and 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 that they can recognize. The, the bacteria, like the species with under a microscope, they recognize when it's ready. They can, they know how to make it. They know how to handle it and they can get it on the field in a timely fashion so that all those species stay alive until they get into the soil and can do the hard work of biology to cycle nutrients so that more applied external fertilizer is unnecessary and the crop thrives without it. Like that's not the same thing as, you know, I, I don't even know what these new biologicals are, but obviously it's the next big sort of run of investment, and I, I worry about it a little bit because in all my travels, like, <coughs> I just haven't seen anyone. I mean, there's some compost products that are pretty effective, but they cost almost nothing compared to conventional crop inputs. Um, and also it's, you know, you can buy compost or you can make compost. The point is you just need those that that variety that like it's quite a long list of of individual species that that are needing to be sort of restored in healthy populations in the soil for it to function properly um so that'll be interesting to see where that one goes yeah definitely reminds me of my gardening days throwing so much compost out in those garden beds and the the vegetables that come out of those garden beds were amazing, incredibly nutritious, tasted amazing. There was nothing better than pulling one of those tomatoes right off the plant and throwing that in the salad. Oh, that's so great to hear because I just finished over, took me two or three years, but I've got my first batch of compost and next year I've got my field that I had put some, but not a field, a fenced garden. I've got just a little hobby farm, but I had been playing around with sheep and goats and pigs and chickens over the last few years. And uh, to give it a break because it was really dry and I think I'd over-gardened it for many years. So, uh, yeah, now now I'm getting ready to put vegetables out there and trying to figure out how to work with this compost. So I'm glad to hear that you had a positive experience with it. Yeah, the great things are to come in your hobby farm. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Brent, before we hit record, we talked a little bit about the farmer's market that popped up near you. Would you mind giving us an overview of what the new farmer mar- farmer's market has been able to do in your local um, yeah, local market near Winnipeg? Yeah, you know, I've been fascinated since COVID with all the small regional um, meat distribution businesses that have come up. You know, we all know uh, Butcher Box and 4P and Force of Nature. And, I mean, I just feel like every time I go through my Twitter feed, I, there's another Facebook, there's another one. You know, I'm seeing them pop up in Australia and, and uh, you know, all over the place. And so 
what we've we've got a few um, farms here that are starting to get scored under the land to market initiative from the ecological outcome verification program through the Savory Institute. And this is this is tricky with with meat because we can't sell it outside the province unless it's gone unless the animals went to a federally inspected abattoir of which there's like you know five in the country or something like that. So we don't have access to the big wholesale meat distribution. But um, if you can get the right animals, you know, in in the right packaging, with following all of the very complicated uh, layers of regulations and permits and inspections. Um, I feel that since COVID especially, there's a great market for that. There's a great customer base. There's lots of people that want to buy meat directly from a farm. <clears throat> Some people will always prefer steaks from Costco, but I've got a few customers now that are like, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to buy my meat from Costco anymore. Maybe they read an article about how the roasted chickens are all farmed by Costco's own farms, and maybe they're concerned about CAFOs in general, confined animal feeding operations, whatever the reason. Maybe they just want a connection with a local farmer, but I can sell them meat that has had a positive environmental outcome, and I can tell them because I've been on those farms and stood in those fields and smelled those beautiful pastures that you know that I can vouch for them. And the farms are too far away from Winnipeg to be able to make sense selling into this market, even through distribution or through farmers markets or direct delivery. It's you know there's a few farms that have been able to make it work, but for the most part we you know, we see the need for a distribution business, for a, a, a small-scale, short-chain distribution business that can market on behalf of farms and get the products into households um, at a reasonable price. And I hate to say this, but the best thing that happened next to this farmer's market that we're talking about is food price inflation. Because three years ago, you know, you couldn't sell bison ribeyes for $29. Like it was, you know... It was just too big of a premium for most people to choke down, but um, uh-huh. now rib- ribeyes are twenty nine dollars everywhere. So it's you know there's it, it's rebalancing the the math towards <clears throat> local local meat for consumers. Um, but still, you know it's just it, it's you kind of have to start at a farmers market with any new farm branded product, and our new farmers market here doesn't have. Um, they don't have that limitation on on reselling food from other farms. Some farmers markets will only allow vendors that have actually made it, baked it, grew it themselves. And so what I wanted to do, which was marketing for farms that are extremely regenerative, but too far away. And um, so this new market has slightly new rules, slightly more, you know, aggressive in terms of wanting to, make sure that there's, you know, good traffic and, and good vendors and, you know, like any new business needing to make a go of it. And it's, I mean, it's beautiful. It's attracting heavy traffic from Winnipeg. And so uh, we were able to have enough conversations um, just by setting up there um, twice a week to, to get a customer base to make this, make this thing, make this little distribution business viable. And it hasn't been in the three years that I've been trying. Um, so that's, that's really exciting. It's just, you know, one thing I learned is how much fun farmers markets are. Like I started my career on the open outcry trading floor, you know, pit of the Winnipeg Commodity Exchange. And, you know, uh, this is, this farmers markets are a lot more fun. <laughs> there's, 
there's just a real camaraderie <laughs> yeah. between the different vendors and there's just so much diversity in what's going on. And, you know, I, I ever since I started dabbling around with hobby farming a couple of years ago, we sold eggs to neighbors. There's, there's something really humbling about handing a package of food to a customer. Like I honestly feel that every farmer should do it. I don't care if it's a patch of strawberries or, you know, eggs or make your own flour, do your own baking, but every farmer should actually go through that experience of a direct transaction with the customer who's going to eat what you grew on your land. It's, it's so empowering. Yeah, I agree. Farmers markets are quite the thing. Do you see that, what are the supply and demand dynamics in your local farmer's market? Is Are all of the vendors coming there, are they selling out, or is demand an issue? Mm, yes, it is. But I think because it's new, and I think because um, it's hard to find a supplier of all the different types of food. I firmly believe that most people come to the farmer's market to buy food from farmers. That's kind of how they started, right? Now, you can get all sorts of other fun stuff at a farmer's market, and you can get really fancy food, but like wholesome, hearty, local, paper-wrapped, you know, that kind of food, um, it's hard to find, and that's because it's hard to make a viable business of it, and it's really hard to find the labor to to create those, you know, kind of um, min- minimal minimal impact local foods. Like, market gardens are so much work, and... Local butchers are so backed up. It's yeah, we're 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 constrained on the small chain processing and distribution of farm branded foods just as much as you know the the huge system is constrained on its ability to treat animals and and you know greenhouse gas emissions targets. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I've been very interested in recently, that constrained, the, the small chain constraints and how you can create efficiencies through that or in that model so that, one, you can have enough demand so that farmers, there's no question that when the farmer goes to market, they're going to sell all of their products. Like that's in a in a perfect world, I think it it would be, you know, you sell ten, the demand was ten, it's a perfect match, right? But we live in a world where it is just inefficient and I've been very interested in that in that small chain. But do you think do you think are you optimistic about what's to come in this local small chain world or or what what should we be thinking about? Um, oh my, this is a, I have so many answers to that question because I'm so curious about it too, right? You just, it's the rabbit hole that never ends. You know, there's so many different things to look at. Regulations is a good example, okay? So there's no regulations in grain. A farmer can go out and spray whatever the heck they want in as much quantity as they want on any crop field. It's, you know, there's, there's cosmetic spraying, there's, there's residues that are being left from mis, mistiming of, of that. And there's nobody looking at that. Nobody is out there saying, hold on a second. <clears throat> the way that you're producing grain might be poisoning the, the world's food supply. Should we take a closer look at this? Nobody. 
Okay. But then in meat, where you've got, you know, just so much immediate improvement in animal welfare and nutrient density and water holding capacity of soils and biodiversity immediately, if you can, if you can uh, market packs of meat from those farms, you're having a huge impact on people, planet, animals, the whole thing. And the regulations are just, they're everywhere. Like the, the animal inspector, the meat inspector, the way that that um, abattoir and butcher is set up, the information on the packages, all the permits and the licenses is just never ending. And so then produce, again, no regulations whatsoever. You can show up at the market, you can show up at, you know, a wholesale distribution with a bucket of potatoes and there's just, you know, like there's just nothing governing how, you know, the, inform the information about the production or the food safety. Then you get into eggs and dairy. And again, we're into another whole, I mean, in Manitoba, eggs are consider considered a hazardous good and they have to be handled as such by producers, distributors, and, and transportation and in packaging. If they're, if they're not, if they're, um, if they, if they don't go through a commercially inspected plant. So there's my, there's the long answer of probably the biggest thing we need to be thinking about is those goddamn regulations and the absence <laughs> of those in other, in, in different types of food. Um, so then with the, the supply and demand, like, yeah, you really nailed it. I guess what I learned with our distribution business here, Stony Hill Farm, is whatever you think you're going to do in the beginning, reduce the complexity and the expense of that by about 90%, and then you might have a go of it. Like, there isn't necessarily all that much demand, you know, especially because farmers markets are not open seven days a week like Safeway is, right? Like, you, there's the, the customers have to go a certain bit out of their way in order to buy their food this way, and that that capacity gets tested pretty quick, you know? So... Home delivery is, is a bitch in the summer because you're dealing with frozen meats. And for the most part, these businesses can't afford a, a freezer truck right away. I'm told by successful farmers that that's one of the most important investments to make as quickly as possible is a way to transport frozen meat all year long safely and, and, and that, it's, that it's worth it. It'll increase sales and reduce spoilage. But that's a big ticket item if you're just getting started. So what we've done is we've just kind of focused on it in the winter and that's a focused on delivery in the winter, focus on the farmer's market in the summer. And just to final point on your question there, it's good <clears throat> that, the, that the market ended for us because it's going to force us into social media. And when I see how the quality and the frequency of the tweets that come out of like the butcher box, for example, I'm just like, okay, this is, this is not like children's play here. This is not TikTok or you know, Facebook, like we need to be, well, maybe it's all of those things, but I think the only way to really tap into the market to make sure you've got consistent, steady demand is to be a master on social media and posting what you've got, having features, recipes, stories, tips. Like I said, I can't, I just, I love the ones from ButcherBox because they're so informative and they're so interesting. So if you're, if you're going to get people's attention that way, that's the kind of thing I think that, that gets people to finally click through and make an order. Um, and that has to be figured out. Like farmers markets, great entry point for uh, like a new product line, something like this. But it's not it's not sustainable. It's not the thing that's going to allow you to quit your day job. Yeah, I think 
do you, does your local farmers market have the pickup option? I was doing some research in one of ours locally. You know, you can pre-order it and pick it up. Like parking is a huge issue, and it's really hard to find it. So people, out of all of the pain points, when you think about the customer's perspective of going to a farmer's market, like you can't park, you're not sure if they're going to have what you're looking for, it could be more expensive. Um, I'd love to get into those economics too, if you're aware of it, but are you seeing any success in the pickup orders at all? Uh, interesting point, because that's actually what, what we're developing on our farm, which is only two miles from the farmer's market. So we wouldn't have too much stuff from the other vendors, but uh, local line and there's some other um, ordering platforms where the market can put every vendor's stuff and price in there. And that's, that's where I go to check prices. I mean, that is a fantastic amount of price data, you know, to be able to go and order online from any farmer's market helps all the other vendors know where the market is at. And so that, that online ordering is offered by another farmer's market in Winnipeg and the, and the pickup thing too. Um, but not mine. Mine's on the other side of the city and it's, uh, it's brand new. And so I have a warehouse on my farm that has all the proper food handling health permits it's permitted as a store but it's just a room in my house that I'm not using that's full of chest freezers and a couple shelves of flour and oatmeal so people can come and do on their way home from the market they can come and pick up their orders here uh, interesting I like that I hope yeah there's a few places that do that here as well one of our local um, food producers they actually do they have, they have pickup or delivery if it's over, I'm not sure, like $125. But then they also have big drop points, um, two of them in our bigger city of Boise. So it's really cool. You order it, and then you just go pick it up. Um, and their farm is about an hour away. And so they make it – they're trying to make it as streamlined as possible. But it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier in this small chain distribution problem that we see. Mm -hmm. It's almost like – Maybe people have seen or heard of the, the challenge in the last mile and how that inefficiency in the supply chain, people can make a little bit of living off of that. But it's, I think it's, it's even a little bit more pronounced in what we're talking about because it is food, because it is meat, because you have to have things refrigerated and the, just the logistics of it can get a little hairy. Oh, yeah. Totally. And I mean, it, it's, it's a wicked problem to solve and it's such a crucially important problem to solve. And you know what, what you're talking about with the drop points, we, all that's happening here too. Um, individual farms developing enough of a customer base that the, everybody can work on the farm and they get their deliveries figured out. Like some smart people have worked really hard to make excellent progress in the last, I'd say five or 10 years on this topic. So now that there's more of us running around saying, hey, I think this, you know, I think, I think there is customer demand for it. So if we can solve the connection, the connectivity issue, we, the market will continue to grow. And I think you can, you can look at the growth data in farmers markets over the last 10 years as proof of that. Like it's pretty insane. I think that I saw some statistics a few years ago that showed the number of the number of farmers markets, like the increase, was bigger than 
any kind of demand increase I, I've ever seen in all my years as a, as a food market analyst. Um, so, you know, there's there's more farmers markets, there's more vendors at farmers markets. Then you get these uh, tapping the square and the online e-transfer. You guys don't have e-transfer, but um, in Canada you can just automatically electronically transfer cash from your bank account to anybody else's. And there's um, you know that kind of fintech, that kind of transformative finance, if you will. Having that at the farmers market, having that enable local food, you know, currency and transactions, has really had a big impact. You know, like I uh, I remember the first a few years ago, first farmers market of the season. I drove into town, went to the ATM, pulled out two hundred bucks because I wanted to. You know, I absolutely love going to the farmers market. And I came home with like $180 because I just tapped my way all the way through, did half my Christmas shopping. Like I was just, you know, I was having such a good time and having nice conversations and buying stuff that I felt great about. And it was made so much easier because everyone had the little tap, the squares. It was the first year that those really came out. And as an economist, I just, I kind of went, whoa, this is a, this is a big deal. This is really going to transform mm-hmm. how people like me spend their budget, their monthly budget. It, it completely shifted. I haven't been to Walmart since. That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing what can happen if you take away that small pain point of the cash transfer, dealing with the cents, and just going, you know, all tap. Um, it, it can really be, yeah, beneficial. Everyone knows. Everyone knows it now. Um, Brenda, what are your thoughts on price transparency? You mentioned earlier that we were talking about local line, I think is what you had mentioned. But I've always been interested in figuring out a way. Maybe it already exists. I'm not really sure. But there's a pain point here or a belief that farmers market produce and meat is generally just, who knows, 30 20% higher than if you were to go to the grocery store. And that is just an assumption that I think a lot of potential customers have. And I've been doing a little bit of research on figuring out a way, maybe it already exists, I'm not sure, but to price compare it, the local Winco, the local Fred Meyer, the local Albertsons versus the local prices of the farmer's market. And I'm not sure if that exists, but maybe it already exists where you're at. No. And can you believe this is a a, price transparency is, this is a battle I've been fighting for about 20 years. I believe that price, price transparency is a public good. And, you know, there is, there's huge issues with this in the commodity grain business. Maybe not so much in the U.S. because it's a pretty standard set of crops and elevators are so close to one another but but here it and in we have you know flaxseed sunflowers lentils chickpeas we have all these kind of smaller volume specialty crops that don't have a futures contract in backing behind the price discovery mechanism and so the prices get backed off of the next juice market so if you're selling flax to a crusher you whatever their bid, that's my transportation, and that's the price that the elevator will pay to a farmer for flax. But it's 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 terrible. It's completely inconsistent. It takes, you know, good people way too much time to phone 30 different buyers to find out who has the highest bid. They don't talk to each other, or if they do, they're constantly lying because that's how the grain business works. I know you don't, therefore I can, you know, negotiate harder. 
Um, so when I start running into it here in the local market too, I've, I'm equally disillusioned because yeah, we're running around to the different grocery stores in town to try to figure out what we can price price that at the farmers market. Like, come on, somebody should be on this. If there's one thing that I think, you know, governments could do to be responsible with, you know, in in the current situation of food price inflation and using some money to create a repository of public prices for food. I I can't believe it's not regulated. To, to exist in in this world, um, maybe some tech company is well on their way to figuring it out, but I sure haven't been able to. It is so menial and so frustrating, and yet so simple, right? Like just tell all the grocery stores, all the grocery companies, you have to put your prices in this database every day. It would probably take them, it would take somebody five minutes, right? Like that database exists somewhere, and then just put it oh, yeah. by city, by province, by major center. Just put it out there to say, here's everybody's prices today. Go where you want to go. Can you imagine the, oh, the competition and the margin contraction that that would enforce? Maybe I don't want that because I want to get my farm breasted distribution business off the ground right now. But <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a huge issue. Thank you for bringing that up. It needs to be talked about a lot more. Yeah, I agree. A couple of ideas running through my head in the past few days um, were bots essentially like going to going online pulling all of their data from their websites and populating it into some database but then i was testing that and i went into one of our local grocers and they don't even list their prices on anything besides Mm -hmm. um pre like pre-order stuff like pre-order salads and pizzas and um assortment um, of sandwiches and things like that, but they had no prices for it. Anything that actually was nutritious, in my opinion. And so I was like, man, there's there's a huge opportunity there, and also seems like it's a pretty big disservice when when you think about how important price is, especially now when we see inflation doing what it's doing and continuing to do it. Really, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I've been, like I said, at this for many, many years, and the reason why I'm so passionate about price transparency is because as an analyst, you can do so much cool stuff with prices. They have to be actual transacted prices. They can't be bids. They can't be features. They can't, they, like, they have to be what did people actually pay, and what did a company pay for grain, what did a, you know, what did a human pay for strawberries from Driscoll's? What did a human pay for you pick strawberries? The spread is the spread between prices is it's like derivatives, right? It's this magical com it's this magical yeah. insight. It's a, the difference between locations, the difference in price between quality levels, the difference in price over time. There's there's just there's incredible insights. And you can't have none of them without accurate, complete sets of data to start with. Yeah, you can, but it brings up some interesting sites I found in the last week. Of course, I am blanking on what they are, but essentially they're taking these imperfect produce items and maybe they have a couple of images or whatever, but the retailers can't sell them because they're not a perfect good, and that's a whole other societal thing we can talk about, maybe on another podcast. But the fact that we don't 
accept imperfect produce as being just as nutritious for us. But anyway, they're taking, they're buying these, I don't know, like 50% off market value and reselling them through their online distribution centers. And I was just looking at one of my emails. I think they were saying like 50% off, like what you would pay for the store. I haven't validated any of it, but it's great that there's at least two companies running that model where they're trying to create the demand for these imperfect goods. And it's really huge, especially when you think about in America, we waste, I don't know, some crazy number, like 30 to 40% of our food supply. And these are these are companies that are taking an action to, you know, alleviate that food waste in our system. So that, that was pretty exciting to see. That's a really good example of, you know, another one of the externalities of the concentrated massive distribution for food of the, you know, the way that it's done right now, there's all this waste, but, you know, there's also a lot of food miles. There's also, you know, some methane pollution out of feedlots. Like there's a lot of, of expenses that aren't priced into food that are related to that wholesale distribution model that we're getting around with our little, you know, small chain, short chain uh, distribution, regional distribution systems. That's a really good example of another one. But uh, you know, do you see what I'm saying? Like the, it's a function of exactly the same extreme difference in this in the size of this type of food distribution versus that one. And and yet we're seeing. Yeah. I've got a couple of those businesses that are are popping up in Manitoba too. So where I get really hopeful and where the the demand uh, equation gets unlocked is in right sizing these distribution models, these small chain distribution models, because, you know, we can take what's going on in, in Idaho and in Manitoba and all over North America. You can take these examples from similar businesses and and just pop them into your own business model, right? Because it's all the same thing. You got to produce it. You got to follow the regulations. You got to get it packaged. You got to keep it cold. And then you got to have a market. And the, the, the size of that distribution model is going to depend on the population density. And what I've realized here is like Winnipeg's not that big. And a lot of the Winnipeg customer base that wants to buy direct from farms already is. So the, you know, the final thing that really matters about this farmer's market here is that it's pulling, it's pulling a customer base that hasn't been served with local farms that hasn't, hasn't been offered farm branded meat yet. And so my my delivery window, my customer base is is a is a new region in this overall urban center, and it's close to my farm where the distribution hub is. So I'm not gonna like waste a bunch of money or lose a bunch of product driving too far, and I'm not gonna run into other vendors that already have like that already have a customer base. So that and that and that you know that was kind of back to my earlier point like taking you know when you have a business idea like this take whatever you think you're you're going to do and scale it back by 90 percent and along the way take a good hard look at every single asset that you already have like what exactly is the context what exactly tools do you have network you know unused room in my house pickup truck extra freezers you know, you just got to really try to not spend any money um, because you don't know how long it's going to take until the customer base. You don't know what the margin is going to be. 
you can forecast all you like, but it's yeah. you know it's entire it's entirely backward looking when we measure the success and the profitability and you know did we pay our bills or not. So it just keeping it really really small as small as possible to start with I think is really important because that's that eliminates all the risk and it increases the chances that you've got something that's sustainable and viable. Yeah, I totally agree. And I could talk hours about that exact topic. Um, but I just like to, to point out that I think it's very interesting that essentially in Winnipeg, you were saying that the people who are already buying from farmers markets, like is essentially hundred percent, I don't know if saturated is the right word, but the demand is, it is what it is. So, to create further demand for the local products, you essentially have to do a different marketing strategy whereby you're inflating, or I won't say inflating, but in increasing the demand for the product by showcasing the, showcasing the value that these products provide and why they're over and above what they're currently getting in the supermarkets. More nutritious food, less food miles, less waste, like all of these things. And I feel like there's a huge knowledge gap and a huge opportunity for for direct-to-consumer food producers and farmers markets to really to create that that further demand. Do you have any thoughts on that? Interesting. Like, we we just decided to latch on to, to that exact thing, to say, okay, now we're going to go from we're at the farmers market where we can sort of – watch people's faces, have long conversations about this product, measure how many people stop and play around with different things on the signs. Okay, there were some really good learnings there, but now we're into another whole sales channel, you know, being e-newsletter and, and social media marketing. And, you know, what's the hook? Like, what? so what do we talk about? And we that's exactly what we landed on, was we need to focus on the ecological outcomes, and, you know, because if fields in western Manitoba drain better after a heavy rain, then the city of Winnipeg does not flood. Like, there's a very real local correlation between the quality of farmland all around the city and weather events that impact people in the city. Um, and that actually is very interesting to most to the people that stopped. Like people were really interested to hear more about how that worked. And I I think it's just a function of the fact that regenerative agriculture is having a real moment and soil health is suddenly interesting to many, many people that didn't give it a second thought before. Um and you, you know you've always got the nutrient density angle that it, it's a bit too scientific or woo woo, I found. So yet. I mean it makes all the sense in the world to me. I think the correlation between nutrient density and um, flavor, like just by pulling through the complexity of the micronutrients and, and how that presents in food that comes from healthy soil, I think that's the most fascinating thing I've ever, you know, learned in my life. But it doesn't actually, it doesn't, it doesn't spark the interest of local food buyers as much as I thought that it would. It's more the, you know, you can feel good about pollinator strips and wildlife habitat and and I think that's because it is home you know like it is only a couple hours away people really like to know that they're supporting farmers that are you know providing um, environmental benefits that are you know they can't see them they're maybe a couple hours away but 
um, they can they can still feel that connection to the to the uh, to the positive benefits on our local environment. That's an interesting point. Yeah, it, it probably so it's, it's it's probably just more too it's just too scientific, like the nutrient piece. But what they can better understand is carbon sequestration. Like that's been in the media. Everyone kind of understands it, like greenhouse gassing gases. How can soil play a positive impact on that? And then just overall, you know, feeling good about that habitat. Well, and here too, we've had some serious issues with lake quality, and almost everybody has some kind of a recreational property at a lake somewhere, and they're just filthy green. They're they're just full of blue green algae. It's re- kids can't go swimming some days. It's so people feel people. I think I think really resonate around water quality. Um, because it's already affecting their lives. Yeah, definitely. I was just thinking about a few places that that is a thing here as well. So, Brenda, this has been a fascinating conversation. (laughs) So much fun. Yeah, so much fun. Indeed, I love that you helped walk us through the new model of farming, you know, the the five pillars, you know, cash reimbursement, tax incentives, compliance, expense reduction, and then the last being consulting for regenerative farmers, you know, paying them for their knowledge, for their time, incentivizing farmers to be mentors to their communities, building that intellectual resilience back into their farms rather than outsourcing key operational decisions in their farm and, of course, this local discussion or conversation about local farmers markets is a topic of mine and some, a pain point that I think a lot of us can do our part and help solve for our local food web. So appreciate your time today, Brenda, and appreciate the, the writing that you do over on Substack as well. Can you let listeners know how they can get a hold of you and your Substack? Sure thing. Um, our website is prairieroots.ca. Um, I'm I'm mostly on LinkedIn when it comes to social media, sometimes Twitter. And yeah, please go check out my Substack. I write Mondays and Thursdays. I keep it to a three to four minute read. It's called Prairie Roots Research. Um, and yeah, just try to chop chop this ice block apart, just one little chip at a time. Of you know, what is this mass? look like how is it changing where is it coming from and how is it going to you know how how can we all understand better um what role we play in it and what opportunities are that we're now facing because of the changing regulatory and market compliance um farmland math out there so yeah that's my that's my subject that's my happy place i, I just really enjoy sitting down and doing the research i always welcome topic suggestions from readers so um, yeah, and just love love to see how the engagement is building. It's been I've just been doing it since the beginning of 2023. I used to write market analysis like constantly. Uh, I took a few years off to figure out parenting and short chain meat distribution, but it's just wonderful to be back writing market analysis now um, <clears throat> a couple times a week. So yeah, thanks for thanks for giving me the chance to share that with your listeners. Absolutely, we will also throw that in the show notes. So Brenda Jaden, everyone, Brenda, thank you so much for your time again. Thank you. All right. See you everyone.